Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of Red Leg Roundtable. I am Seth Shaner and I'm very pleased today to be joined by longtime veteran sports writer Hal McCoy. Hal, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Seth. Appreciate it. Well, it's great to talk to you. Um, I want to run through a little bit of your background and and then uh, introduce the fact that uh, you were such a part of covering the Reds for so many years. Um Sorry to date you here, but you were born October 18th, 1940. Where did you grow up? Grew up in uh, Akron, Ohio. Up okay. in Northeastern okay. Ohio. Cleveland Indians fan. Okay. All right. Well, then you attended Kent State University. Did you did you play baseball there? I uh, received a partial scholarship, and I played my freshman year and uh, found out really quickly that I could hit the keys better than I could hit the baseball. So, uh <laughs> Joined the Daily Kent Stater newspaper, and uh, that's where it all began. Yeah, and uh, a lot of us learned that even before we could play college baseball. So you're <laughs> you're, you're a little bit ahead of me there. Uh, you became a Dayton Daily News Reds beat writer in 1973. How did you end up going? Where were you between Kent State and there, and how did you end up in Dayton? Well, in uh, 1962, I graduated from Kent State and uh, wanted to be a sports writer. I was sports editor of the Daily Kent Stater. And I uh, had 11 job offers. Back then, uh, there were a lot of jobs to be had. Now it's the other way around. Uh, right. But uh, none of them were for sports. I knew Sentinel as a, uh, a crime reporter. And uh, then about uh, a week later, Ritter Collette of the Dayton Journal-Herald called me and said they had a sports opening. So I said, I'll be there. And uh, called Fort Wayne and uh, told them I would not be there. They were not very happy. Yeah. But uh, I uh, ended up uh, in uh, 1962 uh, joining the uh, Dayton newspaper. And uh, for the next uh, 10 years, I covered everything that you can imagine. I covered uh, uh, golf. I covered the Masters, the PGA, and the Open. I covered auto racing. I covered the uh, Daytona 500, the Indianapolis 500. Uh, I covered the Cleveland Browns the last year that uh, – uh, they won a championship in uh, 1964, and I've offered to come back and cover them so they could win the Super Bowl, but they haven't <laughs> taken me up on it. 
I covered uh, both Ken Beckler when Ohio, and uh, just was uh, very very fortunate to uh, be able to cover uh, all of uh, all of those things. And in 1973, my sports editor came to me. Uh, he said, "We have two openings on the paper. Uh, we have the uh, Cincinnati Bengals and the Cincinnati Reds." And uh, since I you know, grew up uh, playing baseball and uh, did go to Kent State and played a little bit, uh, I chose the Reds. And uh, I was always glad I did uh, take the Reds over the Bengals because I was never a very good crime reporter. <laughs> well, how you brought jokes to the table. That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I guess just to go down a little bit on your bio, you were honored by the Baseball Writers Association of America in 2002 with the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, and, and certainly the layperson might say you're in the Hall of Fame, and I know technically there's different different wings and different things of that museum, but but it is. It's a huge deal to, to have that recognition. I wonder, could you tell me how honored you felt to have that award? Well, it's the highlight of my career, the highlight of my life, other than my, uh, my family. I never, ever dreamed anything like that would uh, ever happen, and to have your peers vote you uh, into the Hall of Fame, uh, that's uh, just uh, just something that uh, you can't hardly describe it. I know when, uh, when I was elected, Johnny Bench told me, now when you go to Cooperstown for that three-day weekend, write down everything that goes on or you'll forget it. Yeah. Well, I didn't take his advice and I didn't, and it went by in a whirlwind, and uh, I'm sure I have forgotten a lot of it, but uh, there was so much that happened that... Uh, it was just a a fantastic weekend. Well, and I, I can't compare it, but it does. That reminds me a little of my wedding day. I felt like you know <laughs> it just went so fast, and and I don't feel like I was able to talk to anybody. I know I didn't get a piece of cake. It, it was gone before I got there. Um, <laughs> hey, I want to tell you before I ask you a little bit about the Reds. I actually met you. Um, you were you were you were very helpful to me. I was a uh, a college student at Ohio State. And I was an intern at the radio station in Columbus that has the Ohio State uh, football and basketball games as the flagship station. They sent me to Cleveland to cover a Reds-Indians game in 2000. And I met you on the field before the game. And I told you where – you asked me where I was from, and I told you. And you had, I believe, a stepson enrolling at Ohio State at the time. And so you actually asked me questions (laughs) about the campus and things like that. And the next thing I know, you and I are going over and talking to Ken Griffey Sr. and Joe Nuxall in the dugout. We're speaking with Junior. All this stuff that I wouldn't have gotten to do. I would have just been a fly on the wall. But but I wanted to tell you, I really always appreciated that and the way you, you treated me. Um, this guy, you, well, we haven't met again until today. So I really appreciated that. Well, that's a great story. Thank you very much. And uh, I tried to do that with young people trying to get started in the business because back when I started, uh, I had a mentor named Earl Lawson, who is okay. also in the Hall of Fame. He worked for the Cincinnati Post. And uh, when I started covering the Reds, he took me aside and said, listen, kid, follow me around, keep your mouth shut, watch what I do, listen to what I do, and I'll help you out. And I did that. I followed him for uh, quite a while. And I got to meet people like Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and uh, people like that that uh, who would not have a time of day for me had it not been for Earl. So right. I remember that and uh, I, I carried it on into my career to help as many people as I could. 
Well, it was really neat. And actually, it was a, I got to see a side of Ken Griffey Jr. The only kind of heard about in, in that particular day, um, Jr. was trying to avoid going out to shag flies. And <laughs> Sr. kept telling him, get out there and catch some flies, get out in the outfield and, and, and do your warm up and, and all that. And, and, and Jr. actually, he turned all the way around, went around the cages and back around on the other side of the infield. And Pretty soon, Ken Griffey Sr. yelled at him again and told him to get out there. Here was Ken Griffey Jr. He was already 30 years old, but he was still the kid in, you know, in my eyes at that point. So that was a really neat day for me, for sure. Yeah, Ken Griffey Jr. is one of my all-time favorites and still remains one of my friends. He calls me every Christmas Eve to wish me a Merry Christmas. And uh, uh, as you probably know, I am legally blind. Yes. And uh, the first time I went to spring training, every day and uh ken would take his batting practice and uh i would watch and my, my wife would always call she was a school teacher and at noon she would call on her lunch break to see how i was doing and the phone would always ring while i was by the batting cage and uh, uh griffey was always there and one day the phone rang he grabbed the phone before i could answer it he answered it and he said nadine you can quit calling we're taking care of him he's fine Oh, that's great. That is great. We'll definitely get to that because I know, you know, as a, as a reader of yours and even, you know, the, the TV and radio stories that were done at the time about how Aaron Boone reached out. I'd like to talk about that a little bit later. Um, I guess, tell me a little bit about, you know, as you mentioned, I've heard of the, the baseball beat writers job and, and kind of like you described where you almost have to just listen and kind of, you, you almost get a full education, don't you, from the manager? You you were probably with Sparky every day before the game. And um, tell me about that. But then also tell me, if you could, tell me how how did the, how did being a baseball, a Reds beat writer evolve over the years? Because I'm sure it changed during the time you were there. Yeah, I was very fortunate to get into the ground, uh, ground swell of the, uh, the big red machine. And uh, – being a beat writer, you go to the ballpark every day, uh, get there three or four hours before game time, and you go into the manager's office and you know, ask the questions uh, that you need to know and ask about injuries in the lineup and things of that nature. And Then you go watch batting practice, and uh, I always did a notebook before the game in addition to a game story, and you gathered all your notes before the game. But uh, – I was uh, fortunate to cover the big red machine, and I thought, being a young kid then, that this is how it was going to be all the time. <laughs> but uh, I found out in 1982 when they lost 101 games, I got to see the other end of the spectrum. So, right. yeah, it's uh, I know it's a fun job, and I've done it for uh, well, 50, this is my 51st year covering the Reds, and I always tell people I'm going to keep doing it until I get it right. And there you go. <laughs> what was it, I guess? And as you mentioned, you kind of had um, some good news to, to share, I guess, in those first several years. Um, but besides talking about specific events that you remember well, um, did you ever have a time, especially in those early days, where maybe somebody got upset with you? Or I guess uh, I know sometimes, and, and I guess also you're in, your paper was in Dayton, so maybe they didn't all read what you wrote as much. But uh, what was that like on that end of it? You showed up every day, whether they were upset with you or not, right? Oh, absolutely. That You had to do that. Plus the fact I was a beat writer and uh, uh, I never missed a game. I didn't take any days off. I, I was afraid I might get Wally pipped. So I yes. uh, I covered uh, every game I could. And they did uh, they did get to see what I wrote every day because the uh, publicity department would uh, 
print out uh, clippings of uh, what you wrote, then they would be available in the clubhouse. So, uh, uh, yeah, they got to see what I saw. And uh, I was very fortunate. Most of the time, uh, uh, if somebody had a beef with me, uh, Johnny Bench was very good at that. He would uh, uh, be mad at me for a day and, and discuss it with me. Then he would be fine the next day. So mm -hmm. that, that's all you can ask is, uh, uh, you know, you show up and let them have their say and uh, hope things are okay. Well, and that's what I, I've always heard. And even I've covered a lot of high school sports over the years. And, and certainly we don't get too negative if we're writing about high school stuff. Right. But uh, you still, if you write something that maybe, you know, is it at all negative, whether it just be because of the, the wins and losses didn't go the school's way, you know, you, you've got to be there the next time so they see you. And, and if they have a beef with you, they can, you just, you hear them out, I guess. And, and maybe you can explain yourself a little bit. But then at the end of the day, hopefully you, you walk away still on speaking terms. Right, right. Most of the time, uh, uh, the, the professional baseball players, as long as you don't get personal in your criticism, uh, you know, they're fine with it. So they uh, they appreciate the fact that you just don't get personal. Sure, sure. Well, tell me a little bit about those first couple years. I, I you know, I was born in '79, so uh, my only reference for this is reading about uh, these events. But uh, talk a little bit about maybe. That first year, you got to cover the playoffs when Pete Rose and Buddy Harrelson got in the big brawl. I don't know. Were you in New York for that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, all the years I covered the Reds, I was at uh, all the games home and away and covered all the playoffs in the World Series. Covered the playoffs in the World Series even if uh, the Reds weren't in it. But in 73, okay. in 73 uh, yeah, uh, they were in it, and I was in New York, and uh, – uh, the Mets upset the Reds. The Reds were uh, supposed to win that series, but they, but they didn't. And uh, Pete Rose uh, slid hard into second base, and uh, Buddy Harrelson knocked down Buddy Harrelson, who was a, a kind of a skinny guy, but uh, he jumped up, and uh, the fight was on. And uh, the Shea Stadium uh, fans went crazy. And towards the end of the game, they had to escort uh, some of the Reds' family and uh, uh, front office people off the field before the game ended because they were afraid something might happen well that, that that's seems like a very highly charged situation and i guess what was it like and, and of course earlier in the a few years earlier they had been to the world series and then and then now you fast forward a little bit let's go to 75 and it's like obviously game six is what everybody talks about i love when johnny bench talks about it and says everybody else thinks the red Sox won the world series after game six um as a beat writer covering that, what could you was it really tense around the clubhouse and with Sparky, given the fact that they really felt like they probably should have won already at that point? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I think Johnny Bench stole that from me because I've okay. said that for years. Every time I give a speech, I say that probably game six of the 75 World Series was the best game I ever covered. Okay. And, uh, I've, I've covered about 7,000 games in my career. Uh but, uh, yeah, that was very, very special, and he's uh, uh, what a World Series that was. And But, uh, no, the, the Reds were pretty confident in themselves, and even after game six, uh, I know Bench and, and Rose and Morgan were, were very confident they were going to win game seven, and after game six, there wasn't a lot of gloom and doom in the clubhouse. They were very confident, and I think Bench even told Sparky to, to relax. We're going to win it for you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Tony, Tony Perez said the same thing. Let me ask you this. The the year after you started as a beat writer, Marty Brenneman came on as, as the play-by-play -play man. Um, I presume you're somewhere similar in age. 
And then, and Marty talks and then Marty's a little different. He's more of a team employee, that kind of thing. Right. You were a journalist through and through. What, what was it like for you being around the same age or just a little bit older than some of these players? Was, was there a social aspect to it back then at all? Or was it just your, you were in the clubhouse and then you did your job? No, absolutely. I, when I started in 73, I was, uh, you know, about the same age, a little bit older than most of the players. And, uh, Traveling with him, I, we uh, at that time uh, the Reds flew a charter airplane, and the beat writers got to go with them. Uh, mm-hmm. Rode the uh, team bus back and forth uh, to the ballpark and all that. So, uh, really got to know the players uh, very well and became uh, pretty good friends with a lot of them. I know you, uh, uh, it, it, being a professional, you're not supposed to uh, uh, get close to the players, but that's difficult to do when you're with them every day. You're right. with them more than you are with your family. And uh, you get to know them and uh, and become friends with a lot of them. But being a professional, if the time comes that you have to criticize them and point out mistakes, you got to do it. And uh, mm-hmm. most of them understood that. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it was uh, you know pretty much uh, being a really close part of the party. Who who were a few of the players there in those mid seventies that maybe you were really close to? Oh, oh, gee, Pete Rose, of course, uh, you know, he was friends with everybody and, uh, uh, pretty much all of them. Uh, Don Gullett became a very, very good friend of mine and, uh, uh, still lamenting, uh, the recent passing of, of Don, who was such right. a great, great, great guy. But, uh, yeah, most of them, uh, most of them, uh, pretty friendly with, didn't have any problems with them. That's awesome. That's really good. And and I've heard the same about NBA teams and and even NFL teams. The coverage back then, that's just the way it was. Uh, uh, you know, there weren't nearly as many um, barriers, I guess, to and, – and sure, I mean, they were famous, and maybe you weren't famous, but at the same time, the vast difference now in, in what they make money-wise and, and, and that sort of thing and just the way that things have evolved, it's, it is a lot different. Um you mentioned the 82 season. Actually, before we get to there, I wanted to ask you about what it was like to cover free agency when it first started, because from what I read, it just doesn't seem like people either understood what it exactly meant or, or what it was like. Can you, can you, can you share a little bit about what it was like when free agency came along? Yeah, you hit it right on the head. When it came along, I was kind of perplexed about how this was going to work and what was going to happen. And uh, then the uh, Reds lost Ken Griffey Sr. and they lost Don Gullett to free agency. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was uh, most of the uh, the media was dead set against it, thinking it was going to ruin the game. And uh, uh, it really probably hasn't helped, but it sure has helped the players. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the immense salaries that they're getting now that they didn't get before free agency. Favored. Didn't help us any, but it just made our job a little tougher. Well, yeah, you needed a program all of a sudden. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> a scorecard to tell who they were. Um, yeah, you're right about that. It certainly, I guess it would, it, the answer is it changed, right? I mean, baseball had been around over 100 years to this point, and it, it certainly made it way different uh, that, that people could actually leave their team on their own choosing without being cut or traded. Yeah, back when uh, I was a kid, back in the old ages, uh, you got to know your team, and, and it's pretty much stick together. Uh, uh, it had the same players at the same team year after year after year, and you got to uh, know uh, who your team was. But uh, now that uh, free agent free agency has come around, uh, it changes and evolves so much that uh, you can't uh, uh, tell your own team without a scorecard. 
Well, and I know we're going to get to what you're doing now. You're covering a little U- University of Dayton basketball. College basketball is dealing with that right now. I mean, these teams are completely different year to year, and it's uh, it's making it sometimes harder to watch if you're a fan because um, it used to be you, you got to know those players for three or four years. Um, before we get past that uh, 1982 mark, the the best record in baseball season there in 81. Uh, take me through what it was like to kind of be around that. And was it an eye roll situation when you see them come out with a banner or was it kind of like, no, they deserved it. They should have been in the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they had a baseball strike that interrupted the season. And then they came back uh, and, and they divided the season into uh, two parts. And uh, they decided that the uh, winner of the uh, first uh, part before the strike would make the playoffs and the winner of the second part would make the playoffs. Well, as it turned out, the Reds had the best record if you combine the uh, two halves of the season, uh, but they did not win either half. Yeah. So they didn't make the playoffs. And I'll never forget uh, when they came back after the strike, uh, the Reds uh, trained in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan. And it was announced how they were going to do the playoffs. And I was in the lobby with John McNamara, the manager. And he found out about it uh, at that time. He destroyed the lobby of that hotel. He knocked over a potted plant. He took all the brochures and threw them around the room. Uh, he he had his Irish dander up, and I don't blame him. Well, no, I mean, it, it certainly doesn't sound good as far as if you're a Reds fan or, or if you, I mean, they put their heart and soul into it and it was their livelihood, right? I mean, he would be remembered whether he, you know, if he made the playoffs or not, that would have been a notch in his belt in his career. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the Reds had the best record in baseball, not just in, you know, in the national. Right. They were 66 and 41 or something like that and, mm-hmm. uh, and not make it. And, uh, you know, that would have, you're right. McNamara would have uh, been uh, well, more well-known than he was. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we mentioned how guys left and then, but actually Pete Rose, he left and came back. Uh, Marge went and got him back. Um, you know, most anybody who's a Reds fan, especially, I mean, that was about the time I started paying attention, but, but people know about the hit, but what was it like to cover that? I had Steve Fiziok on a previous episode and he, he talked about actually he got married, but WLWT told him he couldn't go on his honeymoon until after uh after pete got the hit so that was a funny story to me but what was it like from your perspective to cover it oh it was fantastic because of uh, pete's personality and uh and the way that uh he handled the media they had uh press conferences uh, all along the way as he uh, got closer and closer to ty cobb and it just absolutely amazed me that every press conference he would come up with a different story and they would be great stories and uh he really embraced it and made uh, the job of the media very, very easy. It, uh, uh, it, it was just a fun thing uh, to watch him accomplish what he did. When you, you mentioned that, because I remember when McGuire and Sosa had the big home run chase in 98, and McGuire was so reluctant to be uh, in, the, in the, the spotlight, so to speak. And I remember they eventually he did those press conferences, but I don't know that he was like Pete in that way. no. Um, Not even close. When the Reds played the uh, Cardinals, uh, they would bring him in for uh, those interviews, and it would be yes and no and yes yeah. and no, and that's about it. But uh, Pete would go on and on and on, and uh, it was great. If you were to use some of your um, 
words that you put together from the English language <laughs> as, a, as a writer. How would you describe Pete? Because certainly for a, a later generations, it's it's basically not not the most positive because of the things that have happened. Right. But but, but in the moment through the seventies and then up to this this hit chase, what was it like um, for you to deal with them? And then, like I said, can you can you try to describe them a little bit? Oh man, that's very tough. If uh, whoever invented baseball, Abner Doubleday or Andrew Cartwright or Tony Larusa or whoever it was, <laughs> the game was designed for Pete Rose. I uh-huh. mean, every facet of the game, uh, you know, the way he played the game, he was just a uh, just an unbelievable performer and uh, uh, just embraced the game uh, uh, so much that uh, it's really hard to put any kind of words other than uh, uh, he was just such a great ball player and such a great hitter. And uh, it was his entire life. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it was like he uh, he said he would go, he would uh, walk through hell in a gasoline suit to play baseball. And That's right. That, that describes him perfectly because he probably would. <laughs> and he's just he must have been so confident too right i mean confident uh you might even say cocky but he yeah. he backed it up but you know he uh he would uh talk about how good he is and but he was and he could hit and uh uh i know i heard uh i heard him talking uh not long ago and uh, uh somebody asked him about uh who picked who were the good pitchers he hit against and he mentioned that he owned warren spawn and uh, he said he could hit Don Sutton and Bob Welsh blindfolded. So uh, that's 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 a way how confident he was. Yeah, and I tell you, I again, um, being the age that I am, I remember remember at the turn of the century that ESPN did the they did what they called the Sports Century series, mm-hmm. and they counted down the athletes. And then there's been other documentary type things about Pete and other athletes. But but my thing was always they would always give. 45 to 60 percent of the show would be devoted to the gambling and the banishment from baseball and that sort of thing and certainly that's part of what you have to talk about when you talk about pete but as someone who was younger and i really i barely remember he was a player manager in 86 and didn't play that often no um i barely remember him playing at all and all i had was my grandfather's charlie hustle book the copy of the book that was written about him (laughs) um And things like that to read about him. And I, I always lamented that, boy, this whole thing that has happened post-baseball playing career, we can't get the full story on him as a player because they have to fast forward to the, the banishment for gambling and all the other things. Yeah, most of the people nowadays involved in baseball are like you. They didn't get to see Pete play. I mean, I'm 83 years old, and I got to see his entire career almost. And uh, uh, to me, that's what I remember. I remember uh, – how great he was on the field and how great he was to the media. Mm-hmm. And then of course I had to be part of the investigation and, and write right. all the stuff about him. And uh, uh, that was very, very tough for me to do, but uh, uh, it was part of my job. And, uh, uh, but I, I still remember Pete for uh, uh, what he did on the field. And uh, I'll never forget the, uh, the day he reached 4192 off of Eric Shaw with a single and, uh, well, Riverfront Stadium just went absolutely bonkers. And uh, Cincinnati fans uh, still love the guy no matter what. They do. They do. And I was talking to somebody recently, and every once in a while, a guy, even I remember 
when Chris Steins came up and there's certain guys that they're not going to be Pete Rose's as far as accomplishments, but, but that guy that just hustles after every play and, and every ball and, and every, once every base they can get uh, Cincinnati really embraces that kind of play. Don't they? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you mentioned Chris Steins and you, uh, Chris Sabo was the same mm-hmm. way. And, uh, and, and if you ask those two guys who their baseball hero was, they're going to tell you it was Pete Rose, Absolutely. and that's who they that's who they tried to emulate and play like. And no uh, doubt, he no said they didn't it. have they didn't have the hitting uh, prowess that Pete did, but they had the hustle that he had. Sure. Now you mentioned having to cover the story, and that came in 1989. Um, if you want to share anything about that coverage, that'd be great. But then also let's transition then to the following year because. They were kind of in no man's land. There was another play uh, stoppage of play before um, spring training could get going, and then all of a sudden they had this new manager, and they went on a great streak and nine and zero, and they they went wire to wire. Well, going back to 1989, that was the toughest year of my career because I had to cover every game. Mm-hmm. Then I had to more uh, people at the paper doing investigative work, but I was the front guy. And I had to go face him and ask him the tough questions every day. And after uh, Pete got uh, banned, it was uh, kind of like kill the messenger. You know, I was the guy who was asking him all the questions and writing the stories. So he didn't speak to me for like 15 years. Oh, man. And, uh, you know, we had been very close. So that was tough. So uh, about 15 years later, uh, my wife and I went to Las Vegas. And Pete was there in a uh, memorabilia shop signing autographs. And my wife said, there's Pete Rose. Go in and say hello. (laughs) I said, you want to start a riot? And she said, you go in there and say hello. And I said, I can't do that. He hates my guts. So she pushed me in the door. And Pete saw me. And he jumped up, shook my hand, had me sit down next to him, had a photographer there, took our picture together. uh, Had the picture developed right then, put it in a leather case. And he signed it to a great Hall of Famer from the hit king, Pete Rose. So uh, made up that day, and uh, now we still talk, and I have his uh, personal phone number, and uh, and I was so happy. So I was glad that uh, my wife was insistent. Yeah, sometimes the wife knows best, doesn't she? Yes, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and talk about 1990. Um, That that group before 89 with all the turmoil and all the stuff that happened in 89 and even some injuries – they kind of hit a stall at that point, but the, the four so four or so years before then, they, Pete had led them to a second-place finish every year. Right. Um, so those young guys, Barry Larkin, Eric Davis, Paul O'Neill, Chris Sabo, Tom Browning, Jose Rio had come over, um, and then, of course, the Nasty Boys. Um, that group certainly was pr- primed and ready to go, weren't they? Yeah, no doubt about it, although uh, people didn't realize it, and I don't think manager Lou Pinot- Although he told the team in spring training they were going to win it. I don't know if he believed that or not, mm-hmm. or just trying to uh, inspire them. But uh, uh, I'll never forget uh, the only time a manager ever asked my advice. He called me into his office in spring training before the 90 season. He said, Hal, you've been around this team forever. What does this team need? And I, off the top of my head, I said, it needs a leadoff hitter. So he installed Barry Larkin as a leadoff yeah. hitter. And uh, after they won it, he called me aside then. He said, Hal, 
You're absolutely right. Thank you. That's the first and last time a uh, manager ever asked me my advice. So did you I'm get a ring? A, I'm batting a thousand. <laughs> did you get a ring? Did they help no, you out? I actually, actually back uh, in '75 and '76, I did get World Series. Wow. They gave them to uh, uh, the media back then, but uh, things changed. And uh, in 1990, of course, Marge Shot wasn't about to give us anything. <laughs> Not at all. No. Well, and Mary Larkin could have batted first, second, or third. I mean, he he could have he he was such a hybrid there with his ability to right. to get on base, but hit for power if he needed to, and then steal some bases as well. So he did bat third some that year, but most of the time he batted leadoff because that's what the team needed, and he did it right. Hey, one question as I back up just a moment. Um, I've tried to research this myself. Do you recall the circumstances? Because now if you trade a guy who's making a little bit more money for maybe a minor leaguer or a first or second year player, you can see that on the ledger sheet. You kind of understand it. What was the reasoning behind trading John Franco for Randy Myers? That is a very good question. I've never uh, come up with an answer to that one either. It, uh, uh, you know, it looked bad at the time, but it, uh, you know, John Franco was absolutely lights out. You know? yeah. He was a great, uh, great closer. And, uh, he was a good citizen. Uh, there was nothing that uh, happened in the clubhouse. Or he didn't say anything against the front office. He was a great teammate. And uh, then they traded him for crazy man, Randy Myers. Uh, yes. Well, and you think about it, uh, I think John might have been making a little bit more money, but they're both lefties. And they're, I mean, it was it was almost play, trading for the same, not the same person, certainly, as you've already mentioned, uh, Randy Myers, uh, the talk of all the the grenades and the knives and the different yeah. things in the clubhouse. Uh, certainly, he had a little bit of a different aura about him. And of course, Franco got to go home to New York, so I don't know if if that was part of it or not. But I wouldn't think they would make that trade just to help John out, you know? No, so. no, not when they were you know putting together the team that they were putting together. I, I thought that he would be a you know a big part of it. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, do not know why that happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you're as good as anybody to ask, so I'm glad that I'm just not missing something when I've tried to research it online and things like that. Um, who who called them the Nasty Boys first? Was that you? No, that was not me. That was uh, I think that came along themselves. Uh, okay, but I think uh, Randy Myers uh, yeah. said we're just, we're just nasty, and uh, it stuck. It sure stuck. did, sure did, and certainly. I guess I don't know if it would have been much different with Franco in the mix instead of him, but it did seem like it, it did seem like they were they were such a a unit, the three of them. And I know Norm Charlton started some games that year because of injury, right? But uh, my goodness, and then you talk about you know um, I, I think the Royals in 2015 and some of these other teams that have gone on to do really well, even even the '96 Yankees with Wetland and Rivera. I mean you go back to that Reds bullpen and they really kind of set a tone for, you know, six inning and on we're, we've got this game. Exactly. Right. And it didn't matter which one. I mean, they all three were interchangeable. Uh, mm -hmm. they, uh, all three of them could close. All three of them could come in the seventh inning or eighth inning. Uh, whatever the situation was that, you know, loose saw, uh, uh, the matchups, uh, they had any of those three could do the job and they did it. I have a memory of being out in my dad's garage in the garage where I grew up, and uh, the, it's the ninth inning. My the transistor radio's on, and, and Myers, it's a one run lead or something like that, and he walks the bases loaded, or he gets second and third, and nobody out, or something like that. And I'll never forget Marty Brenneman calling him a thrill a minute. 
<laughs> he said he was a thrill a minute. Yeah, um, all, three the, all three of those guys were certifiably nuts. And uh, believe it or not, I think Norm Charlton was the worst. And he was the smartest. And he had a right. major out of Rice University. But he was the instigator. He would start the trouble. And then Myers <laughs> Devil would uh, be the ones that would get in trouble. My dad took me over. My, my mom and dad took me over to Athens, Ohio at one point, probably. Um, I don't know if it would have been between the 90 and 91 seasons or when it would have been, but um, Rob Dibble was there signing autographs at like a card show. And I waited in line and it was he and his agent, I assume, the guy with them. And he kept asking every kid after they'd already gotten there, hey, what's your name? And then he'd write their name. And I must have I must have thought, well, I'll, I'll get it out of the way right away. And that way we can chat for a second. And I said, Seth, I- I'm Seth. And I, I slid the card over and he looked at his agent and they just laughed at me. <laughs> and I was only like 11 years old. And I, I remember being uh, sad about that. But then, you know, you know, now it's a, it doesn't matter that much. But I still remember here he was. I mean, he was a big guy, too, for, for me being a little kid. So, uh, do you, Of course, you remember the uh, Rob Dibble and Lou Pinella fight. Yes, yes. I started that. Okay, tell me about it. <laughs> One night, Dibble didn't pitch uh, when the situation would have called to use Dibble tonight, and he said, well, before the game, Rob told me he had a little twinge in his elbow, so I didn't use him. Mm-hmm. So I went out to Dibble, and I said, what's wrong with your elbow? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, your manager just told me that you didn't pitch tonight because you had a twinge in your elbow. And Dibble said, well, the manager's a liar. <laughs> so I went back to Lou, and I said, one of your uh, pitchers just called you a liar. And Lou jumped out of his chair and ran into the clubhouse, jumped on Dibble, and the fight was on, and I had a great story. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a great story. I remember a war of words kind of where the reporters went back and forth a little bit um, when Dave Stewart was the pitching coach for the Brewers, and Joe Nuxall said that they, they brought in this rookie to throw at somebody. Yeah. And uh, the, the word got to Dave Stewart that Nuxall had said that, and uh, and they went the reporters, maybe you, went back and forth. And Nuxall said, well, you hit Billy Hatcher on purpose in the 90 World Series, and you hit him on purpose, too. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. The guy was batting 750. You don't want him in the, in the lineup anymore, being Billy Hatcher. <laughs> um, you know, not long after that season, a year or two later, Jim Bowden took over as uh, general manager, and, and he was there for pretty much a decade, I guess. Uh, and, and certainly – I always remember, you know, Peter Gammons would always have these scoops about the Reds, and you think, well, how how's he getting that in here? Jim Bowden would kind of tell him things, apparently. Yeah. Um, I, I asked you that to say this. Like, can you talk about covering Jim Bowden? Because it, certainly he was more in front of the camera than a lot of general managers are. But then also, what is it like as a beat writer who's there every day watching news filtered out to these national people? Um, I know – being around Ohio State athletics, that gets bothersome sometimes when the national guy gets the scoop and, hey, we're here every day. Yeah, exactly right. But, uh, you know, they figure if they hit the national rather than just, uh, uh, you know, the, the local newspapers and the local radio TV stations. And uh, it can get annoying. And I know that uh, Bowden loved Peter Gammons, but yeah. – uh, uh, I didn't get scooped too many times. Bowden uh, would whisper a few things uh, in my ear once in a while, but uh, we had a little bit of a contentious relationship once in a while. Uh, I know he got mad at me one time, and he went into the clubhouse, and he told the players not to talk to me. Oh, man. 
Well, I walked into the clubhouse and seven or eight players couldn't wait to tell me what Bowden said. So I went up to the dining room and Bowden was there. And I said, so you told the players not to talk to me. Huh? And he said, no, I did not. And I said, well, then about six of your players are liars. And, yeah. Uh, he walked away. And, uh, but uh, we, had, uh, we had our times together. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think, um, I remember in 02, the, the story was that he had trades in place for both Scott Rowland and Bartolo Colon, and then ownership wouldn't approve the money and things like that. Did you ever think that because he was so out in front that he got a bad name because of the fact that he was kind of the face of it all, but it was really the fact that ownership wouldn't pay for the players sometimes that it might have required? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He did a pretty good job of uh, bringing in players and uh, uh, reclamation projects because mm-hmm. of the fact that uh, ownership wouldn't uh, wouldn't pay the money. Uh, you know, he uh, managed to go out and bring in some uh, pretty good uh, pitchers that uh, served him well for a year or two, like uh, Pete Harnish and uh, Pete Shurik. Uh, Shurik, yep, absolutely, yep. And I saw the other day when when um, Don Gullett did pass away that that Bowden put out a tweet about the, the fact that he was a great man, but also, you know, that, that he would take these reclamation projects that Bowden would hand him and, and Gullet, he really credited Gullet with turning those guys around or helping them get there. So um, let's go ahead and move along then uh, that improbable 1999 season. Um, I know, again, it, it's partially my age. I, I mean, I was at, the 1995 NLCS as a fan, as a high school student, 1990, I, I always remember, but I was only 11. Um, but that 1999 season, being a college student at Ohio State, having a roommate whose family had season tickets, and just getting down I-71 as much as possible to watch that team play, that's, for now anyway, the favorite team I ever was following day to day. Yeah, Oh, Sean Casey and, and those guys. And uh, the, it went right down to the final day of the season. We were in Milwaukee, and they had to win that game to set up the playoff uh, uh, with the, um, the Mets on, on Monday, but on the Sunday, and it rained all day. Yeah. It took us seven hours to get that game in. And I think I set a record for consuming uh, Milwaukee uh, bratwurst in the press box. <laughs> they won that game, and... Uh, Unfortunately, they used up all their pitching, and they didn't have any pitching, and uh, right. they got shut out five to nothing by uh, uh, a lighter, I believe it was. It was. Yeah. Uh, so that was a, a big disappointment, but that uh, uh, was a, a very, very fun season, uh, uh, 1999. Good team. I asked if you coined the phrase nasty boys. You did coin the phrase the big road machine. They won 52 games that year on the road. You do games on the road, and I did call them the big road machine. Absolutely. <laughs> That was a fun year. And I, I talked to Eddie Tobinsey a few weeks ago, and, and he, Eddie Tobinsey lamented the fact that uh, obviously Sean Casey was stuck on 99 RBI. And, and uh, they thought, you know, even against a lefty like Al Leiter, they were, I know he was hopeful with that extra game to maybe get over that 100 mark. And, and certainly that would have been secondary to winning the game. But Yeah, that would have been nice. It's always nice to have that 100 on your uh... – yeah. In your resume rather than 99 it's only one more bi but it makes i know difference. it makes a difference says round numbers um okay i guess uh before i ask you about when you when your your eyesight took a turn for the worse can you 
can you look back from from your whole career? Is there is there a, a moment or a season or a game that that you remember most fondly? Well, uh, we already talked about Game Six of the uh, 1975 World Series. That uh, so many Tom Browning's perfect game, uh, two no hitters by uh, Homer Bailey. Uh, of course, uh, Pete Rose four one nine two. Uh, it's hard to point to one because sure. there were so doggone doggone many, and I've been so uh, fortunate to uh, be able to witness all of that. Uh, you know, I've done it, uh, covered baseball for 52 years. I've covered, I've been in journalism for 63, but uh, I always uh, told my wife that someday I'm going to have to get a real job, but I never did. Well, you you make that point, and it's been, I guess, 22 years ago now that that you did have have situation with your eyesight to where you couldn't see nearly as well and and you basically said you might just have to quit then and then aaron boone was one of the guys that i know talked you out of it absolutely uh happened in 2002 we were in st louis and uh it was the last day of a road trip and i felt a little something in my right eye and you know i thought you could uh wipe it out like you do when you feel something in your eye but it didn't go away so i uh, got home and uh, it was still there. So my wife took me to uh, the eye doctor uh, who was usually very, he's a big baseball fan. And uh, he uh, would always talk to me about baseball and we would laugh and have a good time. Well, he examined my eye and he got real quiet. So mm-hmm. I, something was wrong. And he said, uh, I got good news and bad news. I said, well, what's the bad news? So the bad news, you've had a stroke of your optic nerve and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no cure, no treatment. You just have to hope it doesn't get any worse. And I said, well, what's the good news? It only happens uh, in both eyes to 15% of the people. And I said, well, that's uh, pretty good odds. And uh, my uh, left eye took over. I didn't really realize I couldn't see much out of my right eye. I still played tennis every day and drove a car. But about a year later, just before spring training, I got up one morning and I said to my wife, uh, well, we've just become the big 15 percenter. Uh, I can't see. Uh, they're yeah. dark and fuzzy. And so I told uh, my sports editor, Frank Corso is his name, that uh, I was going to have to quit, that uh, I can't see, I can't cover baseball anymore. So he said, you're going to go to spring training and give it a try. And I said, well, okay. So I went to spring training and I uh, uh, took my bags to the uh, condo where I was going to stay. And I said, well, let's get this over took a cab to the ballpark and I walked into uh, Ed Smith Stadium in uh, Sarasota, Florida. I walked into the clubhouse, uh, stood by the door and I looked around in the clubhouse and everything was dark and fuzzy and I couldn't make out faces of the players that I've known for years. And uh, Aaron Boone was the third baseman for the Reds at the time. And I guess he saw my consternation and got up and came over and said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I told him what had happened. I said, you're probably seeing me for the last time. I can't do this. Well, he grabbed me by the arm and said, you go sit down. So I went and sat down at uh, his uh, locker and he said, I don't ever want to hear you say the word quit again. You're too good at your job. Every guy in his clubhouse will help you out. And uh, he turned me around that day. I would have quit, but uh, I kept going and I'm still doing it. And of course, uh, Aaron made me pay. Uh, he told people that he would catch me talking to a Coke machine. <laughs> Probably right. But anyway, 
you know, Hall of Fame votes are sacred, and uh, I, I don't get frivolous with mine. But when Aaron Boone's name was on the ballot, he got one vote. And okay. you, know, you know who that was. Cause Absolutely, for good I, reason. He is a Hall of Fame person. Now, again, we talked earlier about how in the 70s, with, with you being around their same age and things just being different, that you would be more friendly or 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 um, be with them maybe after games and things like that. By 2002 and three, you were not. This was this is a different era. And here's Aaron Boone, um, who who famously, you know, his father would lose his job and then he would be traded uh, in in the summer of 2003. Um, but here he was stepping up to help you, and and certainly that meant probably a lot more than if he was, you know, if you guys were best friends or something like that. Obviously, no, no doubt about it. I mean, all I did was cover him uh, mm-hmm. back in the 70s. The clubhouse was open. You could go in there anytime and talk to the players at any time. And uh, as I said, you travel with them and uh, things of that nature. But by that time, uh, you got about an hour in the clubhouse before the game, and then you had to get out. You couldn't get in there until they let you in, and you didn't travel with the team. Uh, so the only time you saw them was when they played the game, and about an hour before and uh, a half an hour after the game. So you you uh, didn't really create close relationships. So for for him to do that, uh, that meant a whole lot, yes. I will tell you, I was just reminded that that day I told you about in the year 2000 that I I came to Cleveland to cover the game. The Reds won that game in extra innings. Griffey hit a double off the wall to tie it, and Boone either hit a home run or a triple or something like that to knock in the winning run. And then, of course, they closed it out. And I went into the Reds' clubhouse in the post game. And the interesting thing was, and this is 2000, this wasn't further along, but um, people would try to go up to King Griffey Jr. and and talk to him. And he was, and it was getaway day, it was Sunday. And he said, no, I don't don't want to talk, I don't want to talk. But you came in, and you walked up to him, and he stood up, and then we all (laughs) whooshed in. He was willing to talk to you. He knew you from growing up, I'm sure. Um, but, But that was the kind of respect he had for you, because... He, he had kind of swatted away the other folks. And, and this was a game that they had won, and he had had a big hand in winning. Well, I was very close to his father, of mm-hmm. course. Ken Griffey and uh, and George Foster were, were bosom buddies, and I got to know them very well. And they both trusted me a lot. And I'll, uh, I remember that the uh, night that uh, they had the, the uh, press interview when Ken Griffey Jr. was uh, traded to the Reds, uh, we were in the room doing the interview, and I raised my hand, and before uh, he could say anything, he looked at me and he said, I trust you because my father said you're all right. So that that helped a lot. That sure did. That sure did. And that certainly, it was evidence there as a, I was a, I guess a 21 or two-year-old guy, uh, not even in the business yet. So that was, that was definitely, I knew he had reverence for you. So that was really neat. Well, yeah. okay, so now um, I know, you are writing for Press Pros Magazine, and you're covering the University of Dayton men's basketball. Tell me a little bit about that, and and kind of getting back, a, you know, not just not just covering Reds baseball anymore. You're, you're doing a little bit of, of of college basketball as well. Yeah, that's probably heresy to say, but uh, I really, really enjoy covering college basketball and those kids. Well, first of all, before I covered the Reds, when I mentioned everything that uh, I covered before. My beat before I covered the Reds was the University of Dayton basketball back in the okay. late, and uh, uh, covered some good uh, University of Dayton teams at that time. But uh, 
now that uh, I'm getting back in it and covering all the home games and the awesomeness of the UD arena and the fans and 13,400 people every night. And uh, this team is uh, really, really good. They're 21 and four. And what I like most about their, uh, this team is the kids are all so good, so great. Mm-hmm. They are so polite, uh, nice kids. It's yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir, every one of them, which uh, I guess goes back to Coach Anthony Grant right. and the type of players that uh, he recruits. But uh, I just enjoy uh, covering college basketball so much. Uh, I played basketball in high school in addition to baseball, and uh, uh, I love the sport. It is a good sport. I'm I'm still a Buckeye, so we're having a bit of a a, a topsy turvy season so far with the firing of a coach and that sort of thing. But Sunday was good. They beat Purdue, so that was neat. An awesome game. That was a good game. Well, Hal, thanks so much for all your time today. I really appreciate it. I uh, I thank you so much um, for what you've done. I mean, again, when. Um, when, when I was in college, there was the first time I was, you know, late nineties, it was the first time I was able to be online every day or whatever. And I had, I had multiple stops every morning when I got up the, the Dayton daily news website, the Inquirer website. And then later on in the day, the Cincinnati post website. And, and you were, you were the first one I read every day. So I really appreciate all you did for um, Reds fans everywhere and the coverage you, you gave us all. Well, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. All right. Thanks so much. We're going to get out of here on that. And thanks for tuning in to Red Leg Roundtable. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.